2 Corinthians 4. Uh, Paul had just finished, we'll pick up 6 again because it's such a great verse, saying, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. Here Paul is continuing on with this discussion. He's begun to talk to these Corinthians about ministry. He contrasted the ministry of the old covenant and the law with that of the new covenant and the law of liberty the Bible talks about that we have in Jesus Christ, the work of the Spirit in our lives, how it is different, the letter killing and the Spirit bringing life. And he's traced that all the way back to the blindness and how a Jew's eyes can be opened there and the blindness that the God of this world brings even to Gentile lives and how, again, God has to bring light there. And he does that through Jesus Christ. So he says, when we have this, he says, we have this treasure in verse 7. Some people argue about what the treasure there is. Is it this new covenant ministry? I think it's pretty obviously what he just talked about in 6, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in in the face of Jesus Christ. Um, if, If we don't have the life and light of God, we don't have any ministry. So the one has to precede the other. So the treasure is this work of God in us. Then, of course, when we have that treasure, the rest of those things come through our words and our deeds. No life, no light, no true ministry. So the treasure that we have is the work of God in us that we did not possess outside of him. And he says we have that treasure in earthen vessels. The, the again, context here. As we, I read down, and you can, we'll continue to read down, but the, the context is pretty clear. The earthen vessels that he's talking about are our literal physical bodies. Uh, some people, again, want to tie this back to the image that he had of the Roman victory march. They would say that there was earthen vessels as a part of that. that they would break, which there may have been. Or some people tie this back kind of to the Old Testament picture of Gideon, and his men where they would break the vessels and they had the torches. But uh, I think it's pretty clear as the section goes on, what Paul has in his mind is earthen vessels as literal, frail humanity. God making us out of the dust. And he talks about the breaking down and the difficulty in these human bodies as we serve the Lord. And the treasure that we have is in there particularly the the whole focus being, notice the rest of the verse, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. So certainly, you know, the the everyday person might have the 
the common experience of, since they didn't have a banking system like we do, they would take something that was valuable and hide it in a vessel. Sometimes they would put it in a vessel and bury that earthen vessel in the ground. So they would have some similar experiences to putting something valuable in an earthen vessel. But what Paul wants to show here is the, the stress is the incongruity between the vessel and the powerful means of what's coming through it. The onlooker would see, and they'd see Paul, the human vessel, and the things that were happening through Paul, they would have to conclude, are not from the earthen vessel. There's something supernatural going on here. The real power at work isn't from that guy, Paul. It has to be from God. And what is supposed to be pictured in our lives here, the treasure of the work that God has done in us, people should know it's not you, it's him. Now, some of us, as if we were saved, maybe when we were a little older and we lived a life that was more obviously unchristlike, that becomes very obvious, right? You get saved and somebody who knew you says, why are you so different? <laughs> something, something is different about you. If you maybe grew up in Christian circles, you might not have that uh, clear kind of life difference. But the reality is, no matter where we are, if the work of Christ in us, if he's changed our hearts and lives, whether we were 8 or 40 when that happened, people should be able to look at our lives and see something and realize we're different. From the normal, unsafe person in the world, if they look at our lives and what they see in our lives is exactly the same as every other earthen vessel without the treasure in it, we have the same type of speech, we live the same type of life, we have the same type of entertainment, there, there's going to be nothing different there. But a Christian who has this treasure of the life of Christ in them becomes a vessel that the excellency of him is seen in one way or another. Sometimes more obvious than others. The vessel isn't pointless. The point is the vessel is secondary. The excellence doesn't go to the vessel. The excellence goes to the treasure within the vessel. And that is shown through. Paul himself was a vessel Jesus would say in Acts chapter 9, the Lord said to him, that's to Ananias, go for he, Paul, is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. This guy, Paul, Jesus said, is a vessel and he's going to bear my name. People would recognize the work of God in his heart and life. Second Timothy, Paul would write, In a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor, some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. You and I, we want to aim at being a vessel sanctified for the master and prepared for every good work. That's what the testimony of your body should be. <laughs> the life that comes through it. 
he's going to talk a little bit, every work through your body, whether good or evil, it has a testimony to it, says something about the life behind it. And you and I, when people look at our lives, our literal human lives, they are supposed to see something. A life that the excellence is not of us. If it's a joy, if it's a peace, certainly through our speech and our actions, but there should be something different about us in this world that we live in, that people can tell, all right, you are a different type of vessel than the one that the God of this world has blinded. Something different there. Now, Paul is going to expand this kind of in his experience, beginning in verse 8, where he goes through this list, and he's illustrating what he's just declared. All the various, he's going to list a whole bunch of various types of weaknesses that assailed his earthen vessel in Christ Jesus. But yet the Lord still showed his excellency or his power through. So verse 8, first he says, we are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. Hard pressed gives the idea of not having room to maneuver. Some people think these are all battle terms. They, they could be. That might be the larger picture he's giving us. But uh, certainly they worked out in a lot of different ways in Paul's life. He didn't just fight literal battles. So the idea is they're closed in. All, all your various weaknesses, there's no other way around them. You have to live with it, in essence. Paul said that was his experience, yet he says not crushed. Even though they were closed in, there was that pressure. He wasn't broken or cracked in it. There wasn't room to maneuver or move on his own, but yet God kept them in the middle of that. Next, he says, we are perplexed, but not in despair. Perplexed means to be in doubt. Or at a loss as to what to say or do in situations. Um, certainly, it's a weakness of words. Sometimes it's a weakness of wisdom. Sometimes it's just a weakness as to literally there's no other options here. But all of us are going to come to places, as Paul came to places where he literally didn't know what to do. It's kind of good that Paul says this, right? You, you, you don't always feel like he's perplexed. He seems like he mostly knows what he's doing. But so I came to situations in life where I don't know what to do here. I don't know what to say. There's a lot of times where you feel pressure. Like we should know what to do or we should know what to say. Here the apostle says, I didn't know what to do or, or to say. We were perplexed. Yet, he says, even in that scenario, but not in despair. He might not have known what was best, but he trusted in the power of God that God would control in this scenario. God, you don't need my intellect or my wisdom to find your way through this situation. <laughs> you can supersede me here. God can help me and help you in the scenarios that we don't know where we're going or what we're doing. And Paul trusted in that. 
And again, these things would be a testimony. They would see God didn't know, and then they would see God lead, and they would know the excellency wasn't as Paul. Paul would say, I didn't know what I was doing. But God is the one who led and made the way. He said, we are persecuted. Certainly that happened in a lot of different ways. It gives the idea of being handed over to men and what they can do for you. Notice he says, but not forsaken. We may be, and this might seem difficult at times, handed over to a difficult person, boss, certainly believers through the ages, thrown in jail, drugged before judges that they knew were false, charges that were totally wrong, horrible things through the ages. Christians were cannibalizing people or murdering others or crazy things. And they knew now here we are and we're thrown before this power of men. We're persecuted. We're handed over to them. Yet, he says, even in the middle of that, not forsaken. Paul, numerous times, got drugged before some type of judge or governor somewhere. And even though he stood there, he would say, the Lord has not forsaken me. All men might have left me, but he didn't leave me. Never forsaken in those scenarios from the presence of God. Next, he says, struck down, but not destroyed. Knocked down, this is a picture of literally being knocked down, likely in a battle or in a fight. Uh, certainly in that day and age, if you were in a war with a whole bunch of armor on or uh, with a whole bunch of people pressing in on you, the last place you wanted to be was on the ground. That was a death sentence. Yet, he says, but not destroyed. The death blow didn't fall. It hadn't come. He was at places helpless. That's the idea. Knocked down, helpless, vulnerable. Can feel like that in life, situation after situation, knocks you down. You don't have power to change things. He says, but not destroyed. What, what I thought was going to finish everything, it didn't. Human weakness displayed in all different types of ways. Yet, he says, verse 10, always caring about in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. So when he says he's always caring about in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, what is he talking about? He's talking about the principle that the death of Jesus went the furthest to illustrate. Jesus, who was perfect, who was only walking in God's will, who had no reason to go through the type of death that he went through, literal human death worked through Jesus Christ, the ultimate gift of life for everyone else. And the one that became of no reputation and humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, now has the name above every name. And every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that he's Lord. He says that principle, the dying of the Lord Jesus, death working in a human body can be the very means of God to work the life of Jesus Christ 
And Paul mentioned this in a number of ways, Romans 8, 36, and 37. He says, as it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 1 Corinthians 15, 31, he says, I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die daily. He would say in Galatians, from now on, let no one trouble me. I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. He was literally scarred up from the things that he had gone through. And the point here is that natural bodily weakness, the sufferings, the difficulty, the hardship, the places that we come to, whether it's intellectual, emotional, or physical, where we run out of our own strength, which becomes obvious in earthen vessels, that then leads to the witness of the supernatural reality in the earthen vessel. When a person looks and everything's going good in your life, you're at work, and everything's cool and fine, and you talk about being a Christian, that could, it's not that it's not a witness. It can be a witness. But when somebody lies about you and you get trashed and then you respond like Christ, now that's supernatural. You want to know why? Because other people at work don't act like that. The, the weakness provides the unique opportunity to show the excellence. And what Paul says is, over and over and over again in my life, when I came to these various places of weakness, where I was knocked down or out, where I felt like I didn't know what to do, where I ended up in a scenario where I was handed over to people, I just found the Lord in all those scenarios. I found his strength, I found his wisdom, I found his presence. And the dying, the principle of the dying of the Lord Jesus we carry about in our bodies everywhere we go. This is what happens. It wasn't that good things didn't happen to Paul. There's talking to a whole church where people got saved. Remarkable things were going on. But he was saying this is a principle that continually comes. And what happened was obviously not Paul's supernatural power. It was God in him. And the weakness and the brokenness of our life lets light shine through. So a person who ends up with a terminal illness or with material loss, like I said, you're wronged by somebody, you shift life priorities, right? A person who leaves the wealth of, and comfort of America to go serve the Lord on a foreign mission field. Somebody can continue just to serve the Lord faithfully with various difficulties in their lives. Somebody, what happens is the world looks and they say, but why? Why? And the answer is, obviously, because of the Lord. Because the life of God can then be manifested in our body. Something about Jesus is seen in us and known in us. And Paul says, this is what our ministry is. And it was, this wasn't just talk for him. They saw this. They had witnessed this in his own life. He says in verse 11, For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. He's not just dying for dying's sake. He says, When I have to die to myself in my flesh, live in that weakness and accept that, 
the life of Jesus is also manifested in our mortal in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life is working in you. We live, yet are also delivered to death. That's what Paul says. Interesting combination there. Certainly death to the world, death to our flesh, death to the devil. A combination is just seen in so many different ways. And there's a whole lot of, a whole lot of ways this works. Essentially, it's not just being a martyr, but anybody who's going to serve the Lord or give themselves to him, to him in this world there's going to be scenarios where you have to die to yourself. It might be bodily. It might be physical. It's certainly going to have to be relational, the choices that you make. It's going to have to be financial and material, the choices that you make. If you just give time to serve another group of people, you're going to have to do that. If you want to serve other human beings, guess what? They're all sinners too, which means it's not all cake. It means bearing a burden and dying to myself to deal with another human being, to love them. Any true service to God to allow his life to shine through us, to be shown, is going to have some of the dying of Jesus Christ in it. For him to show up in this world and deal with his disciples on a 24-hour basis was a type of death. He just constantly overcame the evil in the world with his good. He met it with who he was. And he was an endless fountain of those things. And none of us are. But he promises to extend that treasure in our lives. And we should be, in some way, something of him. So we don't have to fear bodily weakness or mortification, as the Bible says it, putting our flesh to death, because that's when the life of God becomes manifested in our lives. Now, I will say this. Paul throws in a line that I think is important. He says, we are delivered to death, notice, for Jesus' sake. That's, that's a pretty key thing right there in verse 11. We're, we're not supposed to just hunt this thing down on our own. We don't search for suffering as Christians. We don't uh, jump into it like we want it, like, hey, God, give me some pain so I can serve you. That's not necessarily how it works. We're not called to face any hardship or death here based on our own folly. If I go to the Phillies game wearing the opposing team's jersey and mouth off to a bunch of people and get beat up, I'm not carrying my cross, right? That's, sometimes people do that. They talk about, you know, these difficulties they have in life, and really it's because you're unsanctified. You're, you're mean to people. That's why you have some of these difficulties. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about for Jesus' sake. If I'm being obedient to him, if I'm following him, if I'm doing the things he asked me to do, if I'm living life as a follower of his and I find hardship that's totally out of my control, Paul wasn't looking to get shipwrecked places. But when he found himself in those scenarios, what he said is, I've learned that death is working in us, but life in you. I've seen how God uses these scenarios to show himself the, the treasure that he's put in this earthen vessel. It's weak. 
shines through because of that. And in our lives, when we find those places, I think we can get tempted to focus on the weakness. But maybe we need to say a little bit more, Lord, are you trying to show something of yourself? Then let me find your grace there. It's something of the excellency of the treasure of who you are coming through. Like I said, I don't have to seek for the dying. It will find you. It's life. But we don't need to fear it. Paul had come to learn that God's strength can be made perfect in his weakness. And he said, it's actually what works life in others. I see what he's doing here. And he still does this same thing. And to be a blessing to anyone, in some version, there will be a death to self that the life of Christ can come through. Now, 13, he builds on this and says, And since we have the same spirit of faith according to what is written, and here he quotes from Psalm 116, I believed and therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Despite all his trials and sufferings, Paul says, we have the same spirit of faith according to what is written. Essentially, he's saying, I haven't lost my confidence in God. In all these difficulties and hardships, they haven't caused me to think twice about this. In fact, his confidence has grown, and Paul quotes from Psalm 116.10, where the psalmist is talking about the difficulties in his own life, and he's saying, I have the same belief in God as that embattled writer of Psalm 116 did. Because that writer says, I believe and therefore I spoke. And Paul says, I will confidently claim aloud my faith in the middle of these difficulties and hardships, because I see God working in this way, I know that this principle is true of the death of Christ working in my body. And I don't think we can take that for granted, particularly Paul speaking was often the catalyst to his dying. Right? When he went somewhere and started to say stuff, then people wanted to beat him up and throw him in jail. He, if he just went there and was quiet, probably nothing would happen to him. But the fact that he was bold to speak and obey God and open up his mouth and claim his faith and the gospel that the Lord had given him, it, it brought him to a lot of his dying scenarios. And he's saying, I'm bold to speak about these things. And certainly, again, even in, in this culture, maybe it might have been a little bit harder because there was very much the sense they were very superstitious. And even the Jews, there was a sense that if something negative was happening in your life, God is against you. So for Paul to be shipwrecked or thrown in prison or beaten with rods and then go and tell somebody about Jesus, it could almost be easy to say, God's obviously against you. Who are you saying these things? Look at all this stuff happening in your life. I think it might have even been harder in that day. But what Paul's saying is, no, I see God working life in these scenarios. I've learned this. Now, 
14, he's going to trace this out. He says, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus Christ will also raise us up with Jesus and present us with you. So he's coming now to the ultimate principle. There's all types of death working in our lives until death period where we give our life. But he says, even there, the God who raised up Jesus' dead body, who is now offering life to the world, will also ultimately raise up our mortal bodies when they too finally succumb to death. And the ultimate principle, what happens at the end? We get to stand there together. He says, the death that came to Jesus in his physical body, it didn't quench his life. In fact, it brought out a life that we all hope for. The type of life that is the only life really worth living. Jesus did say he came to give his life, but he also said, I came to give life, and that more abundantly. And the picture Paul has here is in the end, nobody's a loser who's with Jesus. The resurrection, the life and death and resurrection become the basis for Paul's faith and confidence here. Jesus is our first fruits, our forerunner, the firstborn among many brethren, the Bible says. He's led the way. This is how the life of God came to us through Jesus Christ, coming, not living for himself, and extending a life of blessing to others. And this is how God's still working in the world today. For people to not become their own little God, but to die to themselves, to give their life to him. And he pours his life into us. So the Christian ministry ends with all of us raised up in the presence of Jesus, never to die again. Paul says, I don't have to be ashamed of that. I'm confident in that. For all things, he says, are for your sakes. Not just what's happening in him. I think where he says all things there, he's meaning literally all things. He says this in many places, that Christ is the inheritor of all things, and then we become co-heirs with Christ. So everything that's going on in the end is for your good. Certainly that includes the difficulty in his life that was extending life to them. All things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many as God is extending his grace everywhere, all over the place, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. The grace of God working the life of God through the principle of death will bless everyone in the end. It was a blessing for Paul and for this church. And when we all stand in heaven one day, and we can all give an account of what the grace of God did in these mortal bodies, these earthen vessels, Every little bit of his strength meeting our weakness is just going to be another reason to thank God for all eternity. It's going to abound to many. Therefore, he says in 16, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, the inward man is being renewed day by day because human weakness becomes a channel for the life of God, and because human death becomes a channel
for the resurrection life of Christ, Paul says, we don't lose heart. Even through the difficulty of things, it's easy to lose heart in this life, particularly if our aims are not what Christ's aims are. Like we live in a culture that is losing heart everywhere around us. Suicides higher than they've ever been, drug use, mental illness, loneliness, cutting, you can go you, anxiety, you can go basically to any stat, and none of them are good. But for the Christian, we have a source of joy that the world doesn't have. And I think a lot of times we can miss out on that because our aim isn't actually what Christ's aim is. Like Christ promises unique joy, but he doesn't promise that joy in the world or in worldly things. A lot of Christians sometimes wonder why they don't have the joy that they should have when they're seeking for it in places that Christ has no joy. But what he says is, there is joy for us in the Holy Spirit, in this life. There's a place where I don't need to lose heart, even in the most difficult weaknesses that I find in my human frame, even before human death. Paul realized the hand and ways of God, even in his weakness, and even one day when he would die. That's why he didn't lose heart. He didn't give in to the conflict that tells us it's not worth it. He understood, this is all the hell I'm ever going to endure. And even in that, it all has purpose and meaning because God is working in it. The Christian, their suffering, their hardship, the difficulty we face here, it's not random. It doesn't come to us like people in the world who are without God, who have no answer. Again, people want to hit Christianity. What about evil and suffering and death? It's one thing to ask those questions. It's another thing to have better answers outside of God. And it's not just the Christian who has to answer these things. It's everyone. What do you do with it? The Christian, they can say, as Paul says here, the life of God can be manifest in my body, my earthen vessel. It can not only be a blessing and a source of life to others, it is going to abound in glory and thanks all through eternity. There's, there's a purpose behind the things that I face here. The Christian doesn't ignore the harder realities of life. We acknowledge that outward man is perishing. Notice, that's what he says. We don't lose heart even though the outward man is perishing. Paul's admitting it could be a very easy thing to lose heart when the outward man is perishing. Most people do lose heart when the outward man is perishing. But why doesn't he lose heart? Because he acknowledges that the inward man is being renewed day by day. Because I'm not just a beast. I'm creating God's image and likeness. And my inward man, where that treasure is, is being renewed day by day. The body is going to die, and then God's going to give me a better one that's never going to die. But who I am is not going to die. That person is renewed day by day. That person becomes more and more like Jesus Christ. Our outward man is breaking down. 
some of us are fighting against it maybe better than others, but it's going to happen one way or another. No matter how many pills or fruit juice things you take, right? it's, it's going to happen. But the reality is bodily corruption was less weighty for Paul than the reality of daily inward renewal in Christ. He says, this is a greater principle. It's not that one is true or the other is not. Sometimes that's, I think, kind of what we, we wish would happen. <laughs> but the reality is both of those can be true, but one can be greater. Like if I'm on a boat and the wind is in my face, but the motor is for me, the motor is greater. Two principles are active. One force is against me in one way, but the other force is for me in another way. And what Paul is saying here is, yes, the force of my outward man corrupting is against me. But the force of my inward man being renewed day by day is for me. And it's greater. So I don't have to lose heart. It pushes against the wind stronger than the corruption can push. Truth be told... The Bible has much more to say about the dangers of wealth and comfort than it does about suffering and difficulty. It has a lot of comforting things to say about the person who's suffering and hardship. It actually has a whole lot of warnings about those who are in comfort and wealthy. Jesus says it's pretty hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Pretty difficult if somebody has a lot of wealth which is tough for America because most of our middle, middle class people are more wealthy than most of these old kings were. Jesus would also say that it's the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches that choke out the word of God, which means in a society that's really wealthy and has a lot of things to think about, preaching would have its least effective position. He would also warn that if I'm given to the cares of this world with carousing and drunkenness, I won't be ready for the Lord's return. I don't think I have to explain to you what America's like. Like our carousing, we like our drunkenness, and we like our cares, which means we're probably less ready for the Lord's return than we should be. I could just keep going down the list. There's a lot of warnings about people who have it good, then they need to be careful. But when we find these types of passages about a Christian who's in some hardship and difficulty, I think it's interesting that the Lord just encourages us, says he'll help us, says life will be there for us. And in fact, he begins to tie it some of the, to some of the greatest blessings that we have in the Bible, which is why he says in 17, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. This is the language of somebody living out verse 16. The man who calls the difficulties of his life light affliction had quite a bit of affliction in a human level. We'll read that in chapter 11, and even that's only like half his story. 
if, if anybody reads the normal kind of life of Paul, it makes you feel like you're not a Christian. You're like, I'm not a real Christian. Look at what this guy went through. Right now, again, God called him in a unique way specifically to suffer. We're not all called to this. Praise God. Right? I'm glad Paul took this position. So, and I want him to be highly honored in heaven for it. <laughs> but the reality is we're all called to something in this world. But whatever it is, Paul says it is light affliction. He could have fainted. As I said, he could have given it all up. He could have escaped it all. He could have said, like, hey, this is too much, and, like, John Mark, turn back. Could have said, like, Demas, I'd rather just live in the world and have it. He could have said, like, Judas, I'm going to cash out and be done with this. He could have tapped out through his difficulties, but he didn't. Instead, he turned from the moment to the eternal. You notice that? For our light affliction, which is but for a moment is working for us a far more and exceeding eternal weight of glory. You measure life however you will. But the minute you insert the reality of eternity, everything changes. Everything changes. Again, people in the world live for this world, and it makes sense because this is all they have. They think this little span of years, whatever you get, is what I got, and that's it. So I got to try to get everything I can, all the pleasure, all the happiness, all the meaning I can right in that little span. Because when it's over, it's over. But the minute you say that little span just leads into an endless span, changes the whole thing. Now we have new scales to measure things by. That's why Paul says this light affliction that's for a moment is nothing compared to that exceeding and eternal weight of glory. We know he said in Romans 8.18, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. I think even most people who wouldn't say they believe in God would have to acknowledge the profound significance of our lives, our being. Do we really think that it's exhausted in just this little period of life? God called us out of nothing and made us in his image and likeness. Is, is all that filled up? Was all his hopes and desires filled up in, that, in this, the 70 years we get here? I think that's definitely short-sighted. Paul realizes, no, there's much more to it. And... It isn't the Christian suffers pain or loss or death as something that it's not. It's just we have, again, a greater principle, a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And we put that against any of the suffering that touches us in this life. That's all Paul's saying. It's not that suffering doesn't have its weight. All Paul's saying is don't forget the other weight. And when you put those two on the scale, the one weighs way more. And I keep that in mind. How does he do that? Notice, how does that happen practically? Well, Paul says, we look. This is how it happens. We do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen are eternal. The first word for look in 18, the Greek is skopio. It has the idea of contemplating 
marking, fixing your gaze on something. We're supposed to not glance and forget the eternal things of God. I'm not supposed to glance at my life in eternity and then forget that whole thing for the five minutes that I have right now. And that's essentially what we all do every single day. I got to get out of here. The lunches are made. We didn't do the dishes. I got to, right? You're not thinking about eternity. You're just thinking that you need to leave and your two-year-old still has not finished eating dinner, right? Or something like that. What, what we focus on is this tiny moment and we forget the eternal things. If you don't think this is powerful enough, and what I mean by that is just looking at them, contemplating them then I think we don't think much about ourselves or Satan. Because how much sin in the world begins with a single look? We look, then we look again, then we contemplate, then we mark it, then we keep it in front of us. It could be sexual sin, it could be greed, covetousness, it could be pride, it could be reputation. People take a look at something, and they want that thing. That's why people spend billions of dollars every year in ads, because they know if you look at something, it's powerful. And what Paul says is, we're not supposed to just glance at eternal things. Satan wants us to be like that. Christosom who was one of the church fathers, actually said this of his day. He said, For I hear many saying these words worthy of all scorn. Give me today and take tomorrow. All the way back in his day, it was no different. Satan's lies, they don't change. He just wants you to think about today, your immediate life right here, right now. He doesn't want you to think about consequences. He doesn't want you to think about eternal reward. He doesn't want you to lift up your eyes and look at the other people around you who might need to see the life of God in you. And he certainly doesn't want you to think about how you're going to feel about all this 100,000 years from now, bright in the light of your immortality. You want to know why? Because then his, his temptation gets little, turns light. Just think about right here, right now. That's what the world wants us to do. And unfortunately, that's why some Christians start to get worried about eternity. Because, I mean, the world we have right here, right now, is so comfortable and nice, it's hard to imagine a better one. So when we start to think about eternal things, we get kind of scared because they're like, how can it be better than what I got? Even though that's not very spiritual to admit. If you want to look at scope out, contemplate eternal things, it will only happen by a firm decision. You're not going to slip into it by magic. It won't just happen on accident. You have to choose to put eternal things in front of you. Can I encourage you? Read the scripture about eternal things. If you're out here tonight, that's wonderful. You're hearing about eternal things. Think about heaven. Think about hell. Think about the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. Get some good books on heaven and start reading about it. 
If you were going to go on a vacation, most of us would be looking up sites. A lot of us would be yelping restaurants, try to find the best place to eat, right? You would start your prep for what you're going to do and where you're going to go. You're going to heaven for all eternity. You should familiarize yourself with what's going on there. People will prep for all types of things on earth. People will give themselves to their careers. We'll send our kids to school for four years and spend tens of thousands of dollars, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars, to, to set them on some course in their earthly life. And what type of prep are we giving them for eternity? For where they're going to be forever. Paul would say in Colossians, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. There's a lot of Christian discussion about particularly ministry that's so focused here and now. I think it's very interesting what Paul's contrast is when he talks about ministry. If you just read what we just read tonight and you think about it in contrast to the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth stuff that's out there, even a lot of the social justice, so many of the things that you could have talked about even in Paul's day and age. But when he's talking about it, he's talking about life and death and the eternal weight of things, about resurrection about the hope that Christ has given us, about how short things are here and temporary things are here and how eternal and weighty things are there. We can't work really hard and labor in this life to win some rest in retirement and not work and labor when we're actually going to rest for all eternity. And A.W. Tozer says we have such a short time to prepare for such a long time. And Paul says, when I'm in the middle of these things, I'm not losing heart. I know my outward man is perishing, but my inward man is renewed day by day. And this light affliction, which is but for a moment, not that he didn't face difficulties, he just described it. But he says, when I put it on the scales, it becomes light affliction that is for a moment, is working for me a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. It can seem really long when we're in pain and suffering here, when we're in some hardship, when we're in circumstances where we fear not, feel knocked down or perplexed or like everything's just kind of closing in on us. But after your first night's welcome home in heaven, when you put on a resurrected body, and you're living in a society of perfect people, <laughs> and you realize that none of this is ever going to change, it's just only going to get better, you're going to be like, I probably could have taken a little bit more to honor the Lord. It's going to seem light. Paul is just weighing it out a little earlier, and what he says is our focus needs to be not on the things that are temporary, but on the things which are eternal, the things which are seen are temporary. Everything that we see and we interact with in this world, it's not that it's not real or that it doesn't have value. It's temporary, and its value is in its relation to the eternal. 
my, my job, my family, my relationships, all of them have great value. But the value is related to how they relate to eternity, not just here and now, because this is all going. Again, Peter would say, it's all going to burn. So what type of manner of person should you be in this world knowing it's all going? Hebrews chapter 12 says this, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet, yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace, by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Here, what he's saying is, God says, everything that can be shaken will be shaken. And it's all going to go. So are you committing your life to what will remain? Or are you committing your life to what is shaken? If I commit my life as a believer to only what I'm going to have here, I will definitely not want anything to do with this principle of death and life in Christ Jesus. And this moment will seem like the largest, heaviest moment. But then when it's all shaken and gone, whatever value I invested is going to be like the ashes of a coal fire from the other night. Done. But whatever... I connected to him. It's eternal. And it will become a weight of glory. A heaviness of glory that we are crushed by. Who has told us these things? Where do they come from? From God, the eternal one. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. God who spoke from heaven. He's the one who tells us these things. The world is the dream. It's temporary. What is seen will pass away. When we wake up, it'll be eternity, and those things won't change. They won't change. They will be lasting. All of creation will come into right relation to God. That's what our God is a consuming fire means. It means he's going to burn up all the fake stuff. <laughs> and what he said is going to come true. The only thoughts that matter in the world are God's thoughts, because those are the ones that are going to be played out. And I want to live my life in relation to those things. And one day, I'm going to think this light affliction was but for a moment. And this exceeding way to glory, that gets to be eternal. That's what Paul is telling us. These are everlasting and weighty things. So when we find ourselves in this type of hardship and difficulty, particularly even when we're seeking to serve the Lord in the context of ministry, we should recognize, Lord, you have a purpose in this. You put that treasure in an earthen vessel on purpose. And yeah, I probably need to look away from myself a little bit. 
I probably need to lift up my eyes and realize this moment right here is not the only moment. It is just a moment in the train of eternity. And on the other side, there is value in all these things. I can't tell anyone why they have their particular portion. That's usually what we want to know. Why does this have to be my thing? All I know is when we stand there in heaven, when we're all present with Jesus Christ raised up, again, 100,000 years from now, we're not going to be talking about how much hardship we faced here or the good old days in the past. Man, when a Christian just talks about everything in the past, that's a bad sign. And Paul's looking ahead to the future. And Christ will meet us and give us the grace we need in these scenarios. He will renew our inward man day by day. He's the father of our spirits, the Bible says. He is a spirit, so he knows how to mend and repair and minister to our spirits. A doctor can touch your body and help out. God bless doctors. They fix a lot of things, right? On me personally and a lot of people I know. It's wonderful. A doctor can help you, but they can't save you. You're going to die no matter what they do. There's only one person that can save you and that can mend your soul and that promises eternal glory, and that's Jesus Christ. Let's stand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these things that you've given us. We thank you for your eternal promise. We thank you that you have designed to share your glory, to let us reflect it, to let us live in the light of it, to conform us into your image and likeness. And Lord, you know... Uh, our weakness, and you know those who are here, Lord, that are carrying the heaviest burden of that. And Lord, somebody in this room is the person who has the greatest weight, and I just pray that you would renew them with the greatest grace, that your strength would be made perfect in our weakness. And I do pray, Lord, that in each of our lives, that when people look and see us, the excellence would be yours. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.